History is very large. For every notable event you know about, there are four you don't, and 17 that are lost to human knowledge. As a civilization, we don't operate on objective principles. After events occur, it's up to those left behind to preserve the record and frame the narrative. These individuals will uphold some events as tectonic epics that shook the world, and others as unimportant side stories that deserve little attention. Today we bring you a story they don't want you to know about. The Doomed Voyage of the English Armada. Welcome all to No One is Competent, the premier history podcast showing you how no one is good at pressing their advantage. I'm your host, Jay, and I'm joined by Azalea. As, how's July treating you? It's been a weird month, Jay. Bowl gang is ascendant. The people of Sri Lanka are overthrowing their government. Folks are mad at Hungrybox for completely legitimate reasons for once. And a 40-something just gacked Shinzo Abe with a Mississippi Science Fair project. So, frankly, I, I don't even know what's going on. It's, uh, it is shaping up to be an interesting July. Uh. More entertaining, perhaps, than the previous month. Yeah, and for those who, who say I am, am making light of the tragic death of Shinzo Abe, that I am perhaps devaluing pain and suffering and um, being flippant about human life, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe look into the guy <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be a, a, a weird July. I have a wedding at the end of it uh, to attend that I am very much looking forward to. It's one of the first times I've ever, like, had to schedule a flight by myself in a rental car and, you know, do adult shit. Yeah, um, how'd that go? Is, it, it, it's, it's shaping up like it's going to be fine, but flights are kind of weird right now, so they might try and fuck me at the last minute. I don't know. Uh, the weekend this podcast comes out uh, me and my family will be traveling to an undisclosed location in northern georgia uh to scatter the ashes of my uncle who died last um november uh it's a, a spot that was very uh, special to him we finally all had our schedules aligned to go do it uh i had, we, we had kind of a a solemn fourth of july because Fourth of July last year was the last time we all saw him alive, and it it's it, it's been a little rough trying to keep my mom together and through it. That's why I I open with jokes and I try and stay on the humor because ultimately it's 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 up to you to keep yourself going in this world. Yeah, that is, that do be the case. But uh, me and my family would definitely appreciate uh, prayers this weekend. Uh, Jay, how you been? I've been doing all right, more or less. Um, yeah, preparing perhaps for maybe attending a, an anime convention at the end of the month. Hmm. So, before we jump in, just going to remind y'all to follow us on Twitter, at Jaharis48 and at Azalea Wyatt. We have an email if you want to request episodes at nooneiscompetent at gmail.com. Our music is done by the legendary Sam Bryce, and this is, of course, a show with no advertisements, no sponsors, 
no uh, Soros backing or deep state psyop agenda. So please give us some ratings, give us some reviews, and whatever podcasting app you're listening to. If you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Feel free to ask us questions in the comment section. So this is, a, a, I think all of our episodes are very special episodes, but this is an episode where obviously what we're talking about is going to be very interesting. We are going to uh, entertain and, and spellbind y'all with a, an epic tale, but th- this one's more also instructive in a meta sense, because last time we covered a subject that basically everyone at least knows exists, even if they don't know much about it. Like, we joked about how the Spanish Armada was literally the second historical event I was ever taught in school, right? Yeah. And we are now discussing an event that happens literally the next year after the Spanish Armada uh, as part of the same war and series of historical conflicts and I mean, Jay, I had no idea this occurred until you told me about it. <laughs> yeah, the... No, no, no one knows about this thing. It, it's been largely... We're we going to get no views on this video. <laughs> it has been largely written out of history, especially the English language history, because, you know, it doesn't exactly paint the English in a good light. Um, I was actually, in preparation for this episode, one thing I kind of do when I do research for these episodes is I'll often just put in the topic in YouTube and see if anybody else has has already covered it or whatever. And needless to say, not many people have talked about the English Armada. One of the videos that did come up was a uh, a video from a British question show, like a comedy show hosted by Stephen Fry. And one of the panelists was Jeremy Clarkson on it, who our audience might be familiar with as being the host of Top Gear for many years. The Stephen Fry asked all the panelists about this question about you know what was a uh, a fleet of ships that was defeated in 1589 taking high losses and nobody knew you know some people just guessed the Spanish Armada um, obviously being wrong because that was 1588 and when Fry explained what the English Armada was Jeremy Clarkson simply said oh well I don't want to learn about that history. And I think that's pretty indicative of, you know, why the English Armada is not remembered. Our knowledge of history in the English-speaking world comes mainly from the English. And if there's an event that they don't really want to remember, we don't really remember it. You know, history is a weird subject because it's sort of... If, if you're organizing academia, if you look at all of the, uh, if, if you go to high school and in each subject has a hallway, like that's the way it is in my school, there was a, a math hall, a, a science hall. Um, history is, is a weird spot because traditionally it was set up as one of the humanities in the same uh, practices, uh, literary analysis you know you might have gone uh, to your history classes in the same hallway that they taught british lit or you learned how to speak spanish but history does feel shall we say a lot more scientific than the other humanities and i would argue that 
lots of times history is far more rigorous and objective than some of the uh, soft sciences like sociology or economics. <laughs> but ultimately, history is a series of stories and a series of things that happened. And like, for instance, if you're teaching an academic class, if you're making up a curriculum, you have to choose what goes on the test and what comes off the test. Ultimately, history will always be subjective because... You know, you, you say, well, history is just a, a, a list of things that happened. No, history is not a list of things that happened. That's the past. Yeah. History is a thing we do. And so history cannot be fully objective because a human being with bias and uh, flaws and whatnot ultimately is going to have to decide what gets taught, what gets recorded, and what gets investigated further. Um, this happens a lot in terms of there are tons of things that we know happen, but uh, some subjects have way more historians working on them to, under, to, to uncover extra sources or flesh out the historical narrative, and some are kind of left to rot in the archives. Yeah, very much so. And you can really tell that is the case with this event because, again, there's not a lot of information on it. I don't speak Spanish. I'm sure there is probably more sources in Spanish. Um, our main source for this episode is one that was published in Spanish and then translated into English. But a lot of the information that I could find was very contradictory. You know, I might, you know, mm. frankly, get a few things wrong in this episode because the basic course of events of the campaign, you'll hear like two different contradictory versions in two different sources. So, um, mm. yeah, just to get to it, uh, what we're talking about today is the English Armada, which was a military expedition launched by England against Spain in 1589, one year after the famous defeat of the Spanish Armada. And it was basically equally as disastrous. Yes. Yeah. The in, in terms of losses of ships and, and, and men. Yeah. Uh, My main source for this episode is the English Armada, the greatest naval disaster in English history by Louis Santos, translated by Peter J. Gold, and published by Bloomsbury Academic. Now, as a note, this week's episode is a continuation of episode 24, which was our look at the Spanish Armada. As the events of the Spanish Armada provide much of the context for this story, uh, we'd recommend listening to that episode first. To provide a brief summary, however, England went to war with Spain in 1585, following decades of increasing tensions caused by competing economic, political, and religious aims. English privateers, and privateers are going to be also important in this episode, so let's just remember that privateers are essentially, like, officialized militiamen, all right? They are, they are thugs or, or soldiers or mercenaries or however they gained their... Uh, martial prowess. They're people who are good at fighting, people who are good at fucking shit up, who essentially get a, well, it's called a letter of mark, essentially a license from a head of state to fight in the name of that country. And that means they have to turn over a lot of their plunder to said country, but it also means they get the legal protections and backings and uh, repair ports and support of that nation so they are essentially like 
license they, they, they are licensed thugs they operate in this this weird gray zone they're pirates they, <laughs> it's, they, it's they, legalized they're not piracy a military yeah it's it's, it's piracy it's, it's it's legalized piracy uh, we don't really have an analog for it today like i guess you could kind of compare it to um to private co military contractors but even those guys generally like came what like were official military people who were trained by the home military and then just like became private yeah and then and you know mercenaries were a dime a dozen in this period of time you know most armies were made up in the large part of mercenaries um but privateers were kind of well one they were naval and you know they they used ships the, the term privateer is used primarily just for for um people on sea and two they their waters of mark gave them the right to attack ships of countries that you know their government was not at war with um whereas you know mercenaries raised by the by some general in the service of a nation would typically only be used you know in an actual war privateers you could send after whoever you wanted diplomatically they are incredibly nebulous forces really and, and real wild cards in the sort of um diplomatic sphere of the seventh uh, of the 16th century that we're talking about like you can be a head of state and have no knowledge or or you know you, you can have plausible deniability that some guy bearing your name is fucking up a, a nation that you might be sending a, a diplomatic entourage to or trying to court and on one hand like you did approve those actions maybe a, a years ago or maybe a different administration um, but of course it takes months and years for letters to reach these people and shit's just kind of going down in the peripheries of your your nation but anyway these privateers in the English name had been raiding Spanish treasure fleets on the behest of the Queen. Protestant English citizens supported the Calvinist Dutch in the rebellion against Catholic Spain. And Spain, in turn, saw England as a primary obstacle, preventing them from reasserting their authority in the Netherlands. So in 1588, Spain sent a massive fleet of ships, the Armada, to attack England. The plan was for the Armada to sail through the channel and then escort a Spanish army from the Low Countries to England. However, the Armada was repeatedly harassed by English ships in a sort of comical series of errors through their voyage through the channel, and they were then forced to abandon their evasion attempt due to poor planning and weather. And also the inability to competently rendezvous. By the time the Armada returned to Spain, around a third of its ships and half its personnel had been lost, mainly due to disease and weather. The defeat of the Spanish Armada presented England with an almost tantalizingly brief window of opportunity. Spain's fleet was in tatters, leaving England as the predominant maritime force in Western Europe. If England struck now, before Spain could rebuild, they had the chance to make that dominance permanent. The prospect of making a serious attack on Spain was already being considered by the English as early as the end of August 1588. Just as the Spanish Armada was making its way around the northern tip of Scotland, Queen Elizabeth ordered an immediate counteroffensive 
in the form of an attack on the Azores, as the Azores were a stopping point for treasure fleets sailing from the Americas to Europe, booty was as much of a motivating factor as revenge. The English, however, were in no state to launch an attack in 1588. Supplies were low and disease was running rampant through the fleet. The English counteroffensive thus would have to wait. The remainder of the year would instead be used for raising forces and formalizing a more detailed plan of attack. Yeah, like, remember, the, the coda of the last episode was this sort of tragically... I, it's not even funny, it's just sad that after winning this series of battles, most of the English soldiers have to be quarantined on their own ships while disease tears its way through the fleet, and they just rot off the coast of the mainland. Yeah. Really fucking brutal. So... On the English side, the main leaders involved in planning and eventually leading the attack on Spain were Francis Drake and John Norris. Now, we covered Drake more extensively in our episode on the Spanish Armada, but in short, Drake is kind of a, you can paint him as a very inspiring story of uh, someone rising up the ranks of of class in the uh, 16th century. He's a a privateer with extensive experience fighting the Spanish. He circumnavigates the globe. He gets knighted. When the war against the Spanish starts up proper in 1587, he goes and he destroys a Spanish fleet in Cadiz, and then in 1588, he plays a prominent role in leading England's defense against the Armada. And then to balance, uh, shall we say, sea and land, John Norris is the soldier. He's one of relatively few English commanders with extensive experience in the continental way of war. He gained this experience through a successful career as a mercenary, fighting for the French Huguenots and Dutch rebels. His skill would be necessary for the English offensive because it was decided that the offensive would have both naval and land components to it. Jay, if I remember my history properly, at this this is around the time when France is in a sort of like civil war, right, that involves a lot of religion. And there's yes. the Huguenots that are establishing bourbon control over France, right? The Huguenots are the Protestants. Uh, that's the Protestant faction. Um, so uh, their motivating factor uh, will mostly be, um, you know, being able to practice their religion. But that was the real um, wh- where the where the action was. Yeah, correct. There was a lot of fighting in in, in France at the moment. England was a lot more sleepy uh, compared to the continent. Yeah, and, and really, like to touch more on just like on the whole like mercenary thing. When you talk about armies in this era, armies are not made up of single nationalities. You know, we talk about like the Spanish army. If you went to a Spanish army camp in the Low Countries, you would probably find that actual Spaniards, like Spanish people, Spanish-speaking people from the Iberian Peninsula, would probably be the minority. You'd probably have as just as many Germans, Italians, and Flemings. And the English were kind of somewhat separated from this sort of like continental network of mercenaries so most 
English soldiers would actually be English. But yeah, it's a, you, whenever you'd have these conflicts in Europe, that would attract uh, mercenary captains from all over the con- all over the continent, and they would recruit from all over the continent. And France was a big area right now for uh, for the mercenary business. Yeah, this is a period of history where obviously there is a degree of patriotism and loyalty to whatever crown you subscribe to, but national ties are a lot weaker than we think of them being today. And professional soldiers, they had to go where the work was. If there's fighting in Italy, you go to Italy. If there's fighting in France, you go to France. And we forget that as late as the 1800s, if you're like an enlisted men soldier, it's incredibly common, for example, that your officer that you're serving under speaks uh, natively a totally different language than you do. Yeah, you know, a lot of people incredibly common. Well, in well, the 1800s, yeah, a lot of people will joke that the uh, the main language of Russian generals during their wars against Napoleon was French, because a lot of the Russian generals were either you know French educated or were French extract. A lot of them were also Germans as well. Meanwhile, you have like Marshal MacDonald, who's a Scotsman serving in the French army. It was not unusual. So we have Drake on sea. We have Norris is going to lead the invasion that's going to follow the English's incredibly uh, successful naval victory that's going to happen. And then who's our who's our third boyo tying this together? Well, the third individual who would play a major role in the operation was Dom Antonio, the Prior of Crado. Prior was a title given to members of um, the Knights of St. John. Now, Dom Antonio was the illegitimate son of a Portuguese prince. That meant that he was one of the contenders for the Portuguese crown following the death of the childless Cardinal King Henry in 1580. His forces, however, were defeated by those of King Philip II of Spain, forcing Antonio to flee into exile, first in France and then in England, where he lobbied extensively for foreign support for his cause. If you remember last episode, Philip II of Spain is also the king of Portugal at this moment. And, and will remain and the king of Portugal. And if you remember just a few episodes before that, this is a... What we're seeing now is a very similar occurrence to our Fourth Crusade episode, where we have young Alexios saying, no, just get me over to Constantinople. I promise I can convince everyone to follow me. I'm the legitimate ruler. Yeah. Now, with Philip II's armada defeated and England preparing to strike against the Iberian Peninsula, Antonio seized upon this chance to make his dream of becoming the king of Portugal a reality. English support of, of Dom Antonio's cause was finalized in an agreement signed by the queen in December of 1588. As per this agreement, England agreed to provide a force of 120 ships and 20,000 men for the purpose of landing Antonio in Portugal. Once in the country, Antonio assured the English that both the nobility and the people of the nation, obviously suffering under the Spanish yoke, would rise up to support their rightful king. As king of Portugal, Antonio would then pay a yearly tribute of 300,000 golden ducats to the English, this tribute would continue in perpetuity beyond his reign, and the English would have the right to station their military forces anywhere in the Portuguese empire, 
with their expenses paid for by the Portuguese, and the English would also gain control over the Portuguese church. In other words, Antonio was willing to sell his kingdom to England for the price of a crown. For Queen Elizabeth, the prospect of Portugal becoming an English tributary state was irresistible. England would gain effective control over Portugal's empire, which could then be used as a springboard for further expansion around the world. Remember, Portugal has little client states and forts and, and bays all across Africa and the New World at this point. And gaining, I mean, probably the most valuable thing would be to gain access to all of those little um, mini colonies that could be used to springboard English expansion overseas. And they actually have a foothold in in South America, which, you know, in, in the Americas at this point in time, all the money's in South America and Central America. North America, where the English are just starting, you know, to set up shop, is is backwater. Um, you know, the Portuguese have Brazil. At this moment, Brazil is is not much beyond you know the coastal cities, but still, it's they have it. Yeah, in, in in 1588, uh, the English colonies in North America were not exactly looking like a winning prospect. No. <laughs> yeah. Like I mentioned, I think, in the previous episode, this is around the same time the whole Roanoke shenanigans are going on. By the end of 1588, the English had decided on their plan. They would assemble a vast force of both ships and soldiers for the purpose of striking at the Spanish. This fleet would become known to history primarily as the English Armada, and three main objectives were laid out for it to accomplish. The first objective of the English Armada would be to ensure the destruction of a large portion of the Spanish fleet at port. Remember, this is a action that Francis Drake has already proved himself good at doing. The English correctly assumed that the surviving ships of the Spanish Armada, 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 would be under repairs in ports across northern Spain, where they would be vulnerable to raids such as the one conducted by Drake back in 1587. Queen Elizabeth established this as the foremost objective, as it would ensure that King Philip II would not be able to launch another attack on England. The second objective of the English was to capture Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. From Lisbon, Dom Antonio would lead his uprising against the Spanish, and Portugal would become an English client state. And the third objective was to capture the Azores. These are islands um, that are... I think it's... It, it's wrong to say they're off the coast of the Iberian Peninsula, because it took the, the Portuguese and the Spanish a long time to, to find them. They're, they're well into the Atlantic, but they are the closest thing that Europe has to, like islands that are relative that are like between the uh americas and the and europe that are that are in the middle yeah Um, and those islands could be used as a staging point for actions against the spanish possessions in the americas yeah for for the for portugal and spain at the moment it's almost like what hawaii would be for the united states in the you know in the 20th century 
The English plan was ambitious and bold, but there was one significant problem. The Queen couldn't afford it. The defense of England had drained the resources of the central government. To resolve this problem, the expedition would be funded primarily by private investors as a joint stock company. While the Queen would provide six warships and cover one quarter of the expenses of the expedition, Drake and Norris took it upon themselves to build up the bulk of the fleet, calling upon the funding, ships, and services of privateers, noblemen, mercenaries, and volunteers. In addition to the English, many Dutch soldiers and sailors signed on to the campaign as well. And the idea of a uh, joint stock company is relatively new in this period of history, right? Yeah, very much so. This is how they'll fund a lot of their their colonial ventures as well. Yeah, and this is what I first thing I find hilarious about this series of events is that the state is fucking broke <laughs> and this is being basically crowd uh funded this is the the Queen Elizabeth Indiegogo war. <laughs> yes. Now, while the fate of English sailors in 1588 made recruitment initially a bit difficult, a patriotic fervor, and perhaps most importantly, the allure of the booty that could be gained from plundering the wealthiest country in Europe, quickly provided for a large armada. By the beginning of 1589, so many men had signed on as soldiers that the fleet of ships being assembled was not big enough to carry them all. Drake solved this problem as any good privateer would, by seizing an entire fleet of Dutch merchant vessels and commandeering them for his armada. So, just remember that the vast majority of people going on this cru- this this crusade, this mission, this expedition, whatever you want to call it, their main objective is to get rich, which will become very important to keep in mind shortly. In addition to the three objectives of the Armada, one can also view its differing leaders as having three different underlying motivations. Queen Elizabeth was motivated first and foremost by the strategic desire to destroy Philip's navy, by the grander desire of building an English empire, and the privateers and investors were motivated by the allure of plundering quick profit. Finally, Don Antonio was I don't know why this guy's name is messing me up. Dom Antonio. What? I, I, I think I want to call him Don Antonio. Like, like I'm, I'm going Italian with it. But it's Dom Antonio, which of course implies the existence of a sub Antonio and a switch Antonio. He's motivated by his desire to become the king of Portugal. While these three different motivations seem largely complementary, the events of the subsequent exposition would reveal that to not entirely be the case. So in total, the forces of the English Armada amounted to around 150 ships, which are mostly converted merchant vessels, which is relatively standard of the time, 50 or so smaller boats, and 2,700 men, making it roughly equivalent in size to the Spanish Armada a year prior. 27,000 men. What did I say? 2,700. 27,000. Yeah, and just a little bit, uh, I can ramble on. I mean, I can ramble on length about the armies of this era, but I won't. But um, just to talk about what sort of like what they look like, what they're equipped with. This is a transitional period in warfare. 
Um, the main system used by the Spanish would become known to history as the Tercio system. Um, but basically, you would have armies that were generally composed of people in about equal number equipped with pikes and arquebuses, the arquebus being kind of a predecessor to the musket, a primitive smoothbore firearm. Um, this would also give the era the, the name, the age of pike and shot. So when I, we say 27,000 men, you can imagine about half of those probably have pikes as their main weapon, and half of them will have firearms. Um, there would also be some cavalry, I mean, a lot of cavalry in the Spanish, the English not so much because, you know, they're on boats, horses. You can take horses on boats, and they will, but it's not really a fun time. So for the most part, this is an infantry force. On the 28th of April, 1589, the largest naval expedition in English history set sail from Plymouth, led by Sir Francis Drake aboard his flagship, Revenge. The weather was fairly cooperative, giving the English Armada a better start than their Spanish predecessors. Though by the time the fleet had reached the waters north of Spain, around 2,000 men had already deserted, so now we're down to 25,000. Even with the desertions, Drake still had a large fleet. I wonder how many of the desertions were from the, the Dutch ships that were uh, impressed into the cause. I think it was probably, you know, like, kind of like impressed people and also just like, I don't know, people getting cold feet. There is no real explanation given for why so many people deserted. It was not bad weather at this point. I think it was just like the, the early modern naval version of cold feet, essentially. Yeah, and on the, the open waters, it's, it's hard to stop people from leaving. Yeah. <laughs> but Drake still has a large fleet. Now he simply needs to attack his target. The fleet's primary objective, as ordered by the Queen, was to destroy the Spanish Navy. That's supposed to be at the top of the list. Now, the largest concentration of ships along Spain's northern coast was to be found at the port of Santander, making that the logical place of attack. The English knew this, and Drake had been instructed to attack Santander by the Queen. However, once at sea, Drake decided to ignore Santander and instead head for the city of La Corona, near the northwestern tip of Spain. Now, Drake's motivation for attacking La Corona remained slightly unknown to this day. He claimed that unfavorable weather prevented him from heading towards Santander, but many suspect that Drake was primarily motivated by rumors that La Coronia was home to a vast treasury full of gold, silver, and other valuable items. It really does seem that the, the whole weather thing was just an excuse. Other people in the fleet said that, you know, the weather was just Straight fine. They, they, they could have headed towards, <laughs> yeah, they could have headed towards Santander. He, he just didn't. In many ways, people have not uh, changed uh, historically, and people are still saving face now, and they were saving face then. Yeah. While Drake's decision to attack La Coruña instead of Santander is generally seen as a bad one, and it was going against direct orders, it did have one advantage. La Coruña was far more lightly defended. The Spanish were aware that an attack on their ports was likely following the defeat of the Armada, and all across the coast, cities had been preparing for a possible English raid since the end of 1588. The problem is that they didn't know exactly where an attack would occur, 
and thus could not concentrate all their forces in any single location. Maybe the fact that Drake's uh, picking an unorthodox spot to attack is going to play out well for him. In terms of geography, La Corona is situated on a peninsula jutting into the sea, with the land narrowing down below before flaring outwards. Picture a mushroom jutting into the ocean. This peninsula is situated to the west of the appropriately named Bay of Corona. On the northern section of the peninsula lay the Upper City, the oldest part of La Corona, that was surrounded by a wall built in the 13th century. To the south of the upper city lay the Lower City, a sprawling fishing town protected by a weaker wall at the base of the peninsula. Throughout the fall of 1588, survivors of the Spanish Armada had limped their way into various Spanish ports, and La Corona was no exception. The governor of the region, the Marquis of Sorablo, admonished the crews of those ships in the city and put them to work building an artillery fort on the islet of San Antone, which overlooks the Bay of Corona. We are going to have a serious uh, problem uh, pronouncing Spanish words on this episode. The several cannons were also removed from the ships and placed on this new fort and on the city walls, so... Uh, Karuna has been, shall we say, freshly fortified. Yeah. In spite of the Marquis' preparations, La Corunia was still lightly defended at best. In total, the city had around 500 sailors and soldiers who had returned from the Armada, as well as 150 regular soldiers under the captain Alvaro de Troncoso, and about 560 members of the local militia, which leads to a total of just over 1,200 men. The bay was defended by a single large galleon, the San Juan, as well as the armed merchant vessel San Bartolomeu, two galleys, and a few smaller vessels. The English, in comparison, had over 150 ships and 25,000 men. That being said, the Spanish did have ample weapons and supplies, as La Coruña had been set up as one of the supply points for the Spanish Armada. The English fleet was first sighted off of La Coruña on the 4th of May, 1589. A large fire was lit atop the Tower of Hercules, the ancient Roman lighthouse near the city, in order to warn the inhabitants of the region of the oncoming attack. Messengers were also sent to the Marquis. The Marquis, however, did not take immediate action, instead preferring to finish up a court case he was presiding over, before then ordering his two galleys to investigate the threat. No one is competent, people. <laughs> yeah. When the galleys returned with news of the English Armada, the Marquis finally began to call up the garrison for the defense of the city. The English attack on La Coruña began on that day. Their fleet entered the Bay of Coruña to the east of the city. The Spanish guns at San Anton and aboard their ships, which were anchored nearby the fort, opened fire. Two English ships ran aground in their attempt to escape the gunfire, but the rest of them were able to take up position on the far eastern side of the bay, where they were out of range of the Spanish guns. Here, they dropped their anchor and prepared to disembark their troops. By early afternoon, thousands of English troops under the command of John Norris were ashore to the southeast of La Coruña. The Spanish knew they did not have enough men to oppose a landing. 
Instead, the 150 professional soldiers under Alvaro de Troncoso engaged the English in a series of skirmishes in the hilly terrain south of the city. Trongoso's well-drilled soldiers put up a stiff resistance to the English, most of which were fresh volunteers with little combat experience. And the English thought they were fighting a force numbering in the thousands. By doing so, Troncoso was able to buy some time for civilians to seek shelter behind the city walls before the Spanish soldiers themselves withdrew to La Coruña. By nightfall, the English had established themselves south of the peninsula. Another force of 150 soldiers from a nearby town were able to break through the English line and reach the city. But by the morning, it was clear that La Coruña was surrounded. The battle for La Coruña intensified on the following day. The English were able to bring guns on shore to bombard both the lower city walls and the Spanish ships that were previously sheltered by the fort of San Anton. The Spanish took their ships out to engage the English fleet, but faced a hopeless situation given the overwhelming size of the enemy. Instead of fighting a pointless battle, the Spanish crews set their ships afire to prevent them from being captured. The crew of the galleon San Juan, however, decided to leave a long fuse burning in the powder room of the vessel just before abandoning it. When Drake's men eagerly boarded the San Juan, the ship blew up, taking 15 Englishmen with it. On land, the Marquis of Serralbo's officers advised him to withdraw Spanish forces from the wall of the lower city, realizing that it was impossible to defend. The English had men and cannons set up to the south of the wall, and because the wall did not run along the length of the shoreline, the English could now simply land soldiers to the north of it and surround it on both sides. The Marquis, however, refused to allow a retreat. Sure enough, that night, on the 5th, the English landed soldiers behind the wall. Most of the Spanish defenders were able to escape from being enveloped and make their way up to the medieval upper city, but many inhabitants of the lower city were not so lucky. That night, the English soldiers began their sack of the town, assuming the traditional role of a conquering army by raping and killing civilians and plundering their houses for everything of value. On the morning of the 6th, Drake and Norris likely thought that the battle was basically over and the upper city would surrender shortly. Instead of surrendering, however, the soldiers and residents of the upper city began to prepare for a long siege. The sights and sounds of the preceding night had united them in their resistance. As it became clear that the upper city of La Coronia would not surrender without a fight, the English set about a devising a plan to capture it. Their cannons pounded the city walls, but failed to breach it. With his cannons seemingly unable to bring down the walls of La Coronia, Norris switched to a more ancient method of siege warfare. Sapping. This is going to be fun. English soldiers dug tunnels toward the medieval wall. Once underneath the wall, they would set up barrels of powder and detonate them. If it worked, they would be able to knock down this wall in several areas. Meanwhile, the defenders of the city were just as busy as their attackers. Soldiers were stationed across the walls, covering any potential avenue of attack. Civilians, men and women alike, ferried supplies from place to place, repaired openings created by the cannons, and strengthened the wall with timber, stones, and crude sandbags. Early buildings, entire buildings were taken apart for bricks that were then reserved for throwing at the enemy. 
Additionally, the English at their overconfidence had failed to establish a strict naval blockade of La Coruña, which allowed Spanish rowboats to routinely bring in supplies to the city under the cover of darkness. On the afternoon of the 12th of May, the English detonated one of their tunnels. To their dismay, the wall above it remained intact. Either they had not placed enough powder, or had mistakenly stopped their tunnel just short of the wall. Whatever the case was, the failure of the first tunnel did not dissuade the English, who already had another tunnel ready to detonate under La Coruña. This mine ran underneath one of the wall's towers, and the English siege engineers hoped that the explosion would cause the tower to fall inwards, crushing any defenders. The Spanish, however... The word there is that they hoped. <laughs> yeah. Also, when we say, like, siege engineers, this is engineers in, in quotation marks. <laughs> um, the English are not very well versed in uh, the art of siege warfare. The Spanish, however, had heard their tunneling and correctly guessed the location of their mine. They worked tirelessly to shore up the tower from behind, stacking an immense weight of stones and dirt behind it. One of the downsides of using the tried-and-true old tactic of sapping is that the enemy knows about it. Yeah. On the 14th of May, the English began their final attack. Consistent cannon fire had just about opened a breach in the wall in one section, and their mine was ready to detonate in another. The fuse was lit, and English forces gathered near the mine tower, ready to scramble over the rubble and attack the enemy. When it blew up, however, a combination of the weight of the embankment built by the Spanish, and probably just a miscalculation when placing the charge, caused the tower not to collapse inwards, but instead explode outwards, showering the English with stones and rubble, and almost instantly killing 300 of the best English soldiers. Quoting from, Holy shit. <laughs> quoting from Luis Santos, all Norris had succeeded in doing was to create the most extraordinary cannon ever made and to literally fire the stones of the wall, like deadly shrapnel, right into his own face. That's, uh, that's pretty hilarious. <laughs> Rather unsurprisingly, the attack on the tower failed. Spanish arquebusers took up positions on the rubble and repelled the surviving Englishmen, while the women of the city got work plugging the gaps in the wall. The English, however, were more lucky in their second area of attack, the breach that had finally been opened by their cannon fire. Here, the soldiers charged through the gap and managed to establish a beachhead of sorts on the other side. Upon entering the city, they came under intense fire from both the small number of regular Spanish soldiers and the greater mass of civilians hurling stones and bricks at them. This fight would lead to the creation of a local hero, Maria Pita. Maria Pita was one of the many women involved in the defense of La Coronia, and was possibly the wife of one of the Spanish soldiers. When an English flag bearer rushed through the breach, encouraging his comrades to attack, Maria Pita killed him with a spear and shouted to her own comrades to follow her and charge the English. The English, despite still outnumbering the Spanish by a significant degree, were forced to retreat. The dual defeat suffered by the English on the 14th made it clear that the upper city could not be taken, at least not in a reasonable time frame. And with supplies and morale running low, Drake and Norris made the decision to bring 
their men back aboard the ships and set sail for Lisbon. The attack on La Coronia had been a costly defeat for the English. Around 1,500 soldiers had died, and likely many more were wounded. Over a thousand soldiers had also deserted during the siege or after its failure. Most of the Dutch contingent made their excuses and set sail towards France and the Netherlands. So, we, we decided to go on this side mission, and it ends up being a complete and total disaster and getting them nothing. Yeah. And, you know, Drake and Norris's failure at La Coronia is made, you know, even more shocking because, as you mentioned, the English had no real reason to attack the city in the first place. The Queen's orders were to destroy the Spanish fleet at Santander and then sail for Lisbon. Laying siege to random Spanish ports was never a part of the plan. The logic behind Drake and Norris's decision is made clear when one remembers how their expedition was set up and funded. The Armada was a joint stock company, financed by investors and led by privateers. The main motivating factor was money, not long-term strategic aims. Now, there's little money to be had in sinking ships. Plundering trading ports, on the other hand, was a far more lucrative proposal, especially if it was a port rumored to be rich in gold and silver. Now, throughout his career, Drake has successfully attacked far-flung Spanish ports throughout their empire. And when we think of piracy and privateering, we typically think of, you know, just ships fighting it out on sea. But it was it was very common for, you know, pirates and privateers to, you know, storm into a port and, you know, raid a warehouse or something and then leave. Unfortunately for Drake, raiding remote outposts was one thing, capturing a city on the Spanish mainland was another. Norris's failure of judgment is harder to explain, as he did have experience fighting the Spanish on land. But of course, Norris was fundamentally a mercenary, and it's likely that his thoughts were similarly clouded by avarice. Okay, we fucked up, but it's fine, it's fine, we still got like 20,000 dudes, let's just go to Lisbon, install this dude on the throne... Get the reinforcements of the Portuguese peasantry who are going to celebrate their rightful king, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of rally from there. So it's all going to be great. It's going to be great. So the English Armada made their departure from La Coronia on the 19th of May and headed south towards Lisbon. On the route to Lisbon, a major disagreement broke out between Drake and Norris as to the best way to attack the city. Drake argued in favor of a direct naval attack on the city. The fleet would sail right through the mouth of the Tagus and land forces directly near the city itself. Norris argued in favor of a land attack, where the fleet would disembark the army at a safe distance from Lisbon, and then the army would march to Lisbon, attack it conventionally, with the support of the navy. Now, Drake pointed out that the army did not have supplies to last a long march and lacked artillery needed to lay siege to Lisbon. Norris pointed out that they would be there to support Dom Antonio, and once the Portuguese people roused in support of their rightful king, they'd have enough supplies and support. Quite possibly, they wouldn't even have to lay siege to Lisbon, that its people would throw open the gates and welcome them as liberators. These are supposed to be our allies, after all. We're here to fight the Spanish, not the Portuguese. 
Ultimately, Norris's plan won out. We're going to trust the Dom. It had more support amongst the lesser officers. The reason they supported Norris was likely more out of risk management than anything else. Morale was so low after the fiasco of La Coronia. You know, these guys are thinking, if they can't take a small port city, what chance do they have capturing one of the great capitals of Europe? Norris's plan was seen as the less risky of the two, as it would be easier for the English to extradite themselves if things went wrong. And, um, they will. <laughs> yeah, they, they very much would. Of course, they didn't know that at the time. And on the 26th of May, the English disembarked their army near the town of Peniche, some 75 kilometers to the north of Lisbon. The army, which was led by Norris and Dom Antonio, made its way overland. Drake, meanwhile, took his fleet to Cascay, just north of Lisbon. In theory, he was there to wait for it to attack the city in conjunction with the army, you know, it would be a combined operation. In practice, he mostly just spent the next few weeks capturing various merchant ships that had the misfortune of straying near his forces. The English plan was contingent. Drake, Drake's just salty they didn't go of his plan, so he's just <laughs> fucking off, yeah. off to, 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 to do some some low-key piracy on the side. You know, the, go off, King. That's what we call self-care. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> now, the English plan was contingent in part on Dom Antonio's promises of a popular uprising in his name. Once on shore, however... It quickly became clear to the English that the Portuguese people were ambivalent at best to his cause. Neither the peasants nor the nobility flocked to his side. Instead, most Portuguese seemed to have taken on an attitude of neutrality. While many of them did genuinely dislike the Spanish, few of them disliked them to the point of risking their lives in the rebellion. Perhaps ironically, the fear of a Portuguese uprising did run rampant throughout the Spanish administration of Portugal. The landing of an English army with the Portuguese pretender caused a sense of panic amongst the Spanish. The thought of an uprising in Lisbon kept most Spanish soldiers stationed in their city, rather than, you know, leaving to potentially face the English. And this uh, strategy of a dispossessed ruler uh, inspiring the the people of uh, the country to fight for the rightful king is uh, in tons of stories and propaganda and Hollywood movies but basically never works yeah when put into practice <laughs> generally is not a good idea yeah uh, lower classes uh, do not need upper-class rulers, it doesn't really matter to them who's on the throne. Uh, they do not give a shit. Instead of fighting a pitched battle with the English, Archduke Alberto, the Viceroy of Portugal, implemented a scorched-earth strategy, not unlike the one used by the Russians against Napoleon centuries later. The Spanish stripped the countryside of food and supplies along Norris's path towards Lisbon, a task made easier by the fact that most Portuguese peasants had simply fled their homes, not wanting to get caught up in the war. Remember, the English were running low on supplies, and the prospect of starvation was quickly becoming real. Spanish cavalry and skirmishers harassed the English with hit-and-run attacks throughout their march, chipping away at the size of Norris's army. By early June, the English had nonetheless reached the outskirts of Lisbon. 
Like most European cities, the urban sprawl of Lisbon had long since spread beyond its city walls, leaving a large portion of the city undefended. The Spanish, however, had been fortifying the city ever since receiving news of the English attack on La Coronia. And English sloth in that action had brought the Archduke extra time to repair. By the time the English reached Lisbon, the garrison had been increased to 7,000 men, the bay was full of over 50 warships, cannon had been set up at several key points covering both land and sea approaches to the capital, and supplies had been stripped from the buildings outside the walls. Meanwhile, Drake, who was meant to bring the fleet into the Tagus to assist the army, remained put in Cascais with his ships. Norris was furious at what he perceived to be an act of cowardice, but Drake refused to budge, probably judging correctly that attacking the city would result in substantial losses. In the end, there was no single great battle for Lisbon, nor was there really even a siege. Instead, the English set themselves up in the outskirts of the city and attempted half-heartedly to prepare for a siege. The Spanish countered with cannon fire from their forts and ships, and routine attacks from both cavalry and skirmishers. This would continue on and off from the 3rd of June till the 7th, when the English finally began to withdraw to Cascade to embark upon their ships. When the army reached Cascade, Drake and Norris had come to a new decision, how to proceed from there. On the one hand, they still had great many ships and soldiers. On the other hand, the army had been severely weakened throughout the campaign. While in Cascade, Drake had managed to capture several merchant ships. While in Cascade, Drake had managed to capture several merchant ships laden with wheat, meaning that the threat of starvation had at least been pushed back. But Drake didn't exactly bring flour mills with him on his ships, meaning that most of the wheat had to be eaten boiled. Disease also began to set in, as it always tends to do with such situations. Several captains began to sail away from the campaign on their own initiative. Meanwhile, the expedition's leaders received a message from Queen Elizabeth, reprimanding them harshly for their actions at La Coronia and demanding an explanation for why they had failed to destroy the Spanish fleet, like they were ordered to. With morale at an all-time low, everyone chomping on boiled wheat, and just generally proof that this was entirely a fuck-up, The fleet departed from Cascais on June the 18th. If they could reach the Azores, they could still accomplish at least one of the three objectives of the campaign, perhaps even capture Spanish treasure fleet returning from the Indies. Listen, listen, I know we're all miserable, I know we've gotten fucked up, I know Mommy Elizabeth is mad at us, But we can still take the Azores, and, you know, maybe coincidentally there will be a massive uh, Spanish galleon leaden down with uh, silver that just happen, will happen to cross our path. You know, it could happen. Who knows? You you don't know it won't happen. Tell me it won't happen. You don't know it won't happen. Okay, then it's going to happen. It's going to be fine. Everything is fine. Drake's ships made slow progress on their journey from Portugal due to low winds. You know, at one point the winds basically just stopped and his ships were, you know, just stuck floating in the ocean. This gave the Spanish an opportunity to attack. The Spanish did have multiple Mediterranean-style galleys. 
Remember, galleons are powered by the wind. Galleys, on the other hand, are powered by oars. Um, you know, these would look not unlike, you know, if you've seen depictions of ancient Greek or Roman warships, uh, it's kind of the same deal. So basically a Spanish commander named Martin Padilla took a force of these nine galleys out to attack the English. Ore-powered galleys were no match for our galleons if the wind was blowing, but if there was no wind, they could easily maneuver around them. Padilla managed to sink and set ablaze multiple English transports before retreating when the winds finally picked up. Disease, poor weather, and Padilla's attacks eliminated any serious hope of raiding the Azores. Drake finally made the decision to turn north and sail back towards England. The fleet would make an additional stop near Vigo in Spain, where hundreds of their men went ashore to plunder supplies from small towns, killing civilians indiscriminately, before themselves being caught and mostly killed by the Spanish garrison. The Armada then set sail in piecemeal back for England, with ships arriving in a series of waves towards the middle of July. Drake arrived in Plymouth on the 10th and Norris just a few days later. They would both immediately try to blame the failure of the expedition on each other in order to avoid punishment from the Queen. Because of course they would. And now I kind of want to summarize the events that went down. So... The Queen didn't have enough money to properly fund a navy, so it was crowdfunded raised by a bunch of people who mainly wanted to get a return on their investment and greedy privateers and mercenaries who have always just been in it for the money. They ignore orders that are pretty strategically sound and don't directly attack the Spanish. Instead, they try and go for this side town that looks like it's easy pickings and it's rich, but then the side town appears to be way more competent at uh, repelling them than they thought they were going to be. They take massive losses. They're, they humiliate themselves. They alert the Spanish that, you know, they're coming and this is going to go down. Then they go to Portugal where the guy who had totally assured them that he would be able to raise an army in a popular rebellion and help them completely flops out, and they sort of dick around outside the Lisbon suburbs for a while while Drake just completely fucking leaves to go do something else. And then they head off to the Azores to try to recover some of their pride, only to get be calmed and harassed by Spanish ships. And thus they are left to just say, all right, fuck it. And they all sort of like split up and, and come back to England in, in different times. The glorious English armada, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's what happened. Yeah. What's great is there's no even climax of the story. No. Like, I imagine during the uh, dur during the siege of Karunia, a lot of uh, listeners probably thought, you know, this is the Act 2 before the even more explosive Act 3 around Lisbon. But, like, you have to remember that narrative, in the way we, we speak about narrative, kind of, and the way we tell stories sometimes obscures the way that events really happen. You know, 
in Western storytelling, we always think that, like, the most exciting and important thing has to happen at the end because, you know, that's what ends are for. That's what ends to mark. And, you know, in, in reality, these, these people don't have to force the end. They're not here to conquer Spain. They're not, not here fully to, to, you know, be a force in history. They're here to make money. They're here to survive. And when it looks like they're not going to make money or survive, they're going to cut their losses and leave. Yeah. Human beings are all going to make generally the what they perceive as the best decision for them in the moment. And all of the, the Hollywood battles and, and warring that you want is generally going to incur a lot larger destruction and loss of life, and most people are just going to judge that it's not worth it because they don't give a shit about the Queen of England getting more control over the Portuguese Empire. <laughs> it's no, not they... important to them. They just want to, like, get gold and anything valuable they can steal. You know, the armies aren't noble. Commanders aren't loyal. Uh, the, the, the reason this story is probably buried in history is because it teaches all the lessons that all the people in power don't want you to learn. Yeah. Now, it is difficult to pin down accurate casualty numbers for the English Armada. Poor record-keeping and a high amount of desertion during the campaign, with several ships simply leaving at various points in time, makes it difficult to determine, you know, how many people actually died. It is estimated that the English lost around 40 ships, the majority due to poor weather on the return voyage, and between 10,000 and 20,000 men, mostly due to disease, a figure that's not much different from that of the Spanish Armada. In fact, it might be a little bit worse if you go with the high estimates. None of the main objectives of the expedition had been achieved. Instead, the whole affair served mostly to damage the finances of its many investors and destroy Drake's standing at court. Drake was not formally punished, probably because he was still, you know, remembered as the hero of 1588, but he was given a mundane posting as a commander of coastal defenses and basically prevented from returning to sea for several years. Norris was able to return to his mercenary ways, and he just headed off to France to serve the French King Henry IV in his wars. Dom Antonio returned to England, where he fell into a state of near poverty, only being rescued by a small pension provided by the French King. The English Armada was, for the most part, written out of history. Few people in the English-speaking world remember it today, and Drake is remembered widely as the hero of 1588, with little attention paid to the later half of his career. 1589 was the fourth year of the Anglo-Spanish War. Both sides of the conflict had launched costly campaigns, and neither side had anything to show of it. The war, however, was far from over. The conflict would drag on for another 15 years. Dual armadas of 1588 and 1589 would certainly not be the last of the two combatants' follies. The entire course of the war had come to resemble two men boxing in an enclosed space, each one missing their opponents and punching the wall behind them. And this would remain consistent for several years, because no one is competent. You know, Jay, I, I don't think this... Uh, episode will get the most clicks out of our entire repertoire but i'm glad we did it for episode 25 i think this teaches an important lesson that you know maybe 
we're not going to be the most successful podcast in the world. But I think every once in a while we need to remind people that one of the cool things about history is that history is lame. Yeah. And in many ways, that actually kind of makes it cooler. Because it's different than what you expect it to be. Yeah. And like even, you know, I knew of the English Armada before I started this research. But but still, you know, I didn't know a ton about this whole war as a whole, the the, the Anglo-Spanish War. And the more research I did into this, the more just, like, dumb it is. <laughs> you know, like, a lot of our episodes will have one side which is really dumb and makes a lot of bad decisions and another side which is smart and makes good decisions i mean even in this episode you know the spanish mostly make good decisions but this is one of the wars where taken in its entirety both sides just kind of fail miserably and it becomes a matter of which side fails the less um you know i don't i i didn't go into much detail about the rest of the war because frankly i think probably get at least another episode out of some of the stuff that happens later on but yeah it's it is a good example of how like history you know sometimes really just is not you know this great like world war ii clash of empires and one side triumphs over the other with ingenuity and resources and everything else it's often just two nations just bumping up against each other and a lot of the people dying. So, just remember, if you want to request podcast episodes, you can email us at nooneiscompetent at gmail.com. Please go ahead and rate and review us on whatever podcasting app you have. It really helps us out. Tell people about the podcast. Spread the news. We will have another episode coming in the next two weeks. I have been Azalea. I am joined by Jay and... Everybody, no matter where you are, no matter how good or bad things are going, hope you all be good.